how can we attempt to fit all these things together? Let's start with persistent dilemma that liberalism faces, as does anarchism. It's one that I mentioned very recently. But let's start with liberalism. How does a liberal political and social philosophy protect itself against those who would abuse the very freedoms that it affords in order to attempt to subvert and destroy it? How does it protect itself against all those forces that would corrupt and destroy it without employing the very methods that it deplores, which is the notion of armies and police forces and imprisonment and so on, for those who dissent from the political regime. At another level, how does an anarchistic system that eschews leadership and the trappings of leadership or the structures that require leadership like armies and police forces and nuclear deterrence and all this stuff, how does an anarchistic system prevent people like Putin from coming along and just simply grabbing anything they want. And we looked, at least we touched on this a few episodes ago. Well, I want to suggest today that the key to all of this, and to considerably more, lies with the notion of self-reference, which is, of course, right at the heart of the entire debate or the discussion that Gregory Chaitin, Turing, Gödel and Cantor initiated in the late, starting at the end of the 19th century. And the problem in a nutshell is this. If I restate it in the grounds that it was found, namely in the realms of mathematics, but keeping it simple, don't panic. You can have a very simple logical system. The sort of system that says that if A is B, and if B is C, then A is C, that kind of thing. It's called a logical calculus. And in a logical calculus, you can show, and it has been shown, again by Gödel, but uh, earlier than his famous theorems, shown by Gödel and by somebody else called Henkin, about whom I know nothing, in the Gödel-Henkin completeness theorem, that in such a simple system, every truth is provable, and therefore every theorem is provable, and everything provable is true. So for this sort of system, Gödel's theorems 
the incompleteness theorems, the problems that arise from self-reference don't arise because the system doesn't allow self-reference. You can't, in a logical calculus, set up the kind of loops that allow A to refer to itself. A can only refer to something else. Now, you may think what I'm about to say is fanciful, but I think it has some mileage. A system that does allow reference to itself gives rise, because this is the kind of self-referential statement that Gödel used, and that Cantor used, and that Turing used, they're all versions of the same thing, gives rise to the notion that you can say things like, this statement is false. Or, I am a liar, the famous Epimenides paradox. Because if you're a liar, then what you're saying isn't true, and therefore you're not a liar. But if what you're saying is true, then you are a liar, in which case what you're saying isn't true. So either way, you get a contradiction. And essentially, the girdling completes theorems are fancy versions of essentially that paradox. But if you don't allow a sentence to refer to itself, then the problem doesn't arise. And logical calculi don't allow things to refer to themselves in a way that would make the girdle proofs possible. Um, the specific, for the technically minded, the specifics are that because you can't do arithmetic in a logical calculus, you can't set up the numbering system that Gödel used to create things that supposedly had the whole of the truths possible within them, only to show that he could create something quite easily that wasn't in the list. So it's a version of Cantor's diagonalization argument. All right, so much for that. But if we think about liberalism and anarchism and the dilemma I mentioned, they are, I think, easily seen to be dilemmas that arise from a kind of self-reference. That because liberalism deplores anything that isn't liberal, it allows within itself, by virtue of its liberalism, people to say that they don't approve of liberalism and are even prepared to subvert and destroy it. So just as when you extend the realms of mathematics to an area where they're sufficiently powerful to make the kinds of statements that made Gödel's incompleteness theorems possible, so in a liberal or a political system, as soon as you liberate people sufficiently to allow them to be critical of the very system in which they arise, then the problem arises of those who will abuse the system. And they are a bit like the Epimenides paradox. I am going to use what liberalism makes possible to destroy it. 
Now it's obvious that the same sort of problem arises for anarchism because anarchism is going to say, well, we don't need leaders, but there are going to be within a system that doesn't want leaders, those inclined to seize advantage of that and make themselves more powerful than they deserve or than their fair share, as we've called it before. So if I am in a system that doesn't have leaders, that doesn't have police forces and doesn't have armies, perhaps even that doesn't have jails, then what am I going to do about the people in the system who use the very freedoms that the system provides to subvert it, to take people's stuff, to make themselves into leaders on the grounds that there won't be any opposition. You lot are foolish enough to think you can live in such a world, and I'm ruthless enough to take advantage of it. It's a big problem. It's a big problem for liberalism in its way, and it's a big problem for anarchism. It is very instructive at this moment to ask what happens to, let us say, Marxist-Leninist states, or indeed to capitalism that isn't liberal, fascism perhaps, and the answer is immediate. You don't allow the question to be asked because you don't allow the point of view that would subvert the system to be voiced. And therefore you're in the situation, the exact situation, that we talked about earlier, of a system that simply doesn't permit the kind of construction, the kind of numbering, the kind of self-reference that gives rise to the dilemma in the first place. And that, of course, is just what Marxist-Leninist states have done. They have said, I mean, there are as many versions of this as you care to name, but they have said, roughly speaking, the Marxist-Leninist communist system is the only system that is just. Therefore, it is entirely justifiable to prohibit anyone from voicing dissent from it because we know that there is no legitimate alternative and therefore we rightly suppress and repress with the maximum, if necessary, of violence anyone who so much as raises in their mind Orwell's thought police raises the thought in their mind that there might be anything wrong with the system or that we could do better. So Marxist-Leninist systems, in their different ways, don't allow the public expression, and if they could get away with it, the private expression of doubt about the system. Because they have said, concluded, and if you like, defined the system to be the equivalent of our logical calculus, which is complete. Everything true is provable, and everything provable is true, and the only things that are true or provable are the things that are approved 
no pun intended, by the leadership, the party, the Marxist-Leninist leaders. So, the analogy works almost exactly. A Marxist-Leninist state achieves its completeness, achieves its incontrovertibility, by prohibiting self-reference, by limiting what it is permissible to say to those things that are compliant. And woe betide anybody who does anything else. So dissent in such a system is the worst of all possible crimes because it threatens the integrity of the whole system. Right, so we've dealt with liberalism, anarchism and the Marxist-Leninist states in their various configurations. I think it's pretty easy to see how it could apply to fascism, where similarly criticising the Nazis or whoever was a career-limiting option if ever there was one. But what about capitalism? How does capitalism manage this? Well, it's much more complicated because capitalism so often coexists with liberalism. And that becomes a bit complicated because some of the things that are necessary for liberalism aren't necessarily going to support capitalism. And there are certainly aspects of capitalism that are anything but liberal. Those prepared to use the liberalism of their state, to use capitalism to exploit those who are poor and oppressed or who have resources that they want, who go in and mine and plunder, as most of the colonial powers have done throughout history, including Britain. They are not liberally minded. They do believe in exploiting others. They don't think, if they think at all, that exploiting others is reprehensible. They don't allow themselves to think that. So the capitalist system, what does it prohibit? Well, here I think we can come back to something that is major, maybe one of the major takeaways of this series, which is the point that I have voiced before, that one of the most serious problems that we face as a world, and particularly as a Western world, although paradoxically this applies just as much to Marxist-Leninist states, is that we measure success in terms of a person's ability to grab more than their fair share of the world's resources. In other words, a foundational assumption of capitalism, which need not be liberal, but sometimes pretends to be, is the notion that you are more successful when you get more stuff, when you successfully lay claim to, grab hold of and keep, ideally for generation after generation, 
more than anyone's fair share of the resources in the world. And therefore, whereas challenging the state might be the unforgivable sin for a Marxist-Leninist philosophy, challenging that principle is the unforgivable sin for capitalism. Because capitalism is based upon the principle that through competition, through competition, wait for it, the fittest will rise to the top. And so capitalism, as it is given manifestation in its social Darwinist underpinnings, basically says that if you get more than your fair share of the world's resources, that is your just deserts for being either harder working, more able, more valuable, more capable, more intelligent, farther sighted, or whatever it might be, perhaps even more ruthless than anybody else or than other people. And on the basis of that superiority, so-called, you will be successful and your success will be measured by the fact, the observable, tangible fact, that you grab and keep justifiably and legitimately according to the laws that capitalist societies tend to enact more of the world's resources than you might otherwise be thought to deserve. Now, where's the self-reference? Well, I think it's easy to see the self-reference built into the capitalist system. The thing that makes it a goer, the thing that drives it, is a set of assumptions that it simply can't allow to be brought seriously into question. If you challenge competition, if you challenge the social Darwinism, scurrilously summarised by Herbert Spencer in The Principle of the Survival of the Fittest as his misinterpretation of Darwinism. If you challenge that, then in the capitalist world there is simply no hope for you. You are really undermining the very essence of everything that the capitalist world relies on for its success. And with internal consistency, enormous internal consistency, that success is, in effect, that capitalism has allowed capitalists to grab more than their fair share of the world's resources. So there we are. Everywhere we look, we see self-reference. And everywhere we look, we see fear of the destructive potential of self-reference and therefore a tendency to circumscribe it, even prohibit it, in some political systems. So we find ourselves with what begins to look like a universal criterion by means of which 
to assess states, political systems, which is, do they allow self-referential criticism, do they, if you like, allow dissent or not, and in what measure and to what extent and on what scale. And for many of our systems, we know that there are very severe, ruthless penalties for anyone who breaks the socially accepted norms that give rise to whatever levels of dissent we think appropriate. But there are also much more subtle ones, such as those associated with the proclamation of a new king with the crowd that surrounds the whole process with its chorus of approval and more or less says don't you dare dissent from this when we all stand up for the national anthem you stand up when we all say God save the king you say God save the king and God help you if you don't but therein the system seeks to preserve itself. Because while the system can ensure that all its members will fall into line within a single system of hierarchy where they love the monarch, the president, the leaders because they have their place to protect on the great ladder of life that arises from all those parameters, there you've just got another system of repression. That you can think anything you like as long as you don't bring your critical gaze to bear in a self-referential way upon what really lies at the very heart of the entire system. And, if you've been with me this far, one might say, of all the problems of the world. Thank you for listening. <laughs>